0: This is exactly right. They almost fall off the changing table, but you caught them at the last one. They almost, you know, slip under the bathwater. Because, but there's this sense of like, that came too close, you know, and that lives beside you for a moment in this scary way. For me, that was constant for a while. And it was trying to make sense of that and trying to make sense of like these deeply existential stakes of loving a person this much that I had not anticipated when I was thinking about what it would be like to be a mother that, that led to me writing this book and trying to make sense of it in this way through fiction.
1: Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives while striving to be the best versions of ourselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, You can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is The Anxious Mother with Yael Goldstein-Love. Yael is the author of the novels The Passion of Tasha Darsky, described as showing signs of brooding genius by The New York Times, and her new novel, The Possibilities. She also practices psychotherapy with a particular interest in the transition to parenthood and is working towards her doctorate in clinical psychology. Her dissertation research focuses on how mothers experience their anxiety for the unknown futures of their children. She's a graduate of Harvard University and currently attends the Wright Institute. Her fiction and nonfiction have appeared in many outlets, including Slate, the Boston Globe, the San Francisco Chronicle the Wall Street Journal Speakeasy blog, The Atlantic Online, The Millions, The Forward, and Commentary. In another life, she was co-founder and editorial director of the literary studio Plimpton, which aims to make the digital age a golden age for literature. She lives with her six-year-old son and a very patient cat in Berkeley, California. Yael, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much. I am so happy to be here and to see you
1: congrats on your latest novel. Um, I took a deep dive and I was on the journey and I'll just going to hold, I don't want to say too much because you're going to help us, you know, dictate how much we can talk about not to be spoilers, but let me just say, I was on the multi-dimensional journey, um, with you or your, and your character. And, um, (laughs) So, knowing a bit about your work and your recent Slate article, which we'll be talking about, it seems that your personal and professional life have converged by no surprise or coincidence in your latest work.
0: Yes, I would say that that is fair. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, this book really grew out of my own experience of becoming a mother. Um, my. Um, my, I had a very bad birth. My son almost died, um, during labor. In fact, you, you and anyone who, who reads the book will know my birth intimately because that opening scene, that birth Mm -hmm. scene is my son's birth. Mm -hmm. Um, and so he, you know, he almost died for over an hour afterward. They could not tell me whether he was going to make it. So I lay there in the recovery room, just having no idea. Am I taking a baby home or am I in the midst of a tragedy? Mm -hmm. And that and he was fine in the end. It was, he had enough of a reserve of cord of oxygen in his cord blood that he was okay. Um, but when I took him home, you know, into this cozy, seemingly happy, wonderful, um, new existence, I was still stuck. Part of me was still stuck in what had come too close to happening, and it took the normal hyper vigilance of new parenthood where you're sort of you know, you're, you're watching every little thing and you're making sure because you you don't know, you've never done this before and you feel so protective. It took all of that up several notches. And so I felt like, you know, it's like every little, I mean, I feel like for some ways, in some ways it's like this for every parent, right? It's like, you know, you have your first kid home, Every time, you know, they almost they almost fall off the changing table, but you caught them at the last one. They almost, you know, slip under the bathwater, but But there's this sense of like that came too close, you know, and that lives beside you for a moment in this scary way. For me, that was constant for a mm-hmm. while, and it was trying to make sense of that and trying to make sense of like these deeply existential stakes of loving a person this much that I had not anticipated when I was thinking about what it would be like to be a mother. That, mm-hmm. that led to me writing this book and trying to make sense of it in this way through fiction.
1: And did it? Did, it, it did, really, did this process? Yes.
0: It really did. I mean, I'll tell you. So, I mean, when I, those first few months, I did not know how to talk about what I was going through because I was aware, you know, it's like, I've been, I've been to graduate school. Like I, I was familiar with some diagnoses of postpartum, but I think right. I, I thought about it in this very categorical way of like, well, this is postpartum depression. This is postpartum, um, uh, anxiety. And I, and I was thinking about it as like these boxes and not sort of Thinking like no 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 like there's an infinite an infinite variety that postpartum suffering can take just as there's an infinite variety that human suffering can take and it could look okay. any any which way and okay. um and so I did not know how to speak about my own experience of this this feeling of like this bad thing had come too close and we were and and somehow that was still a danger. And and I'm so hyper-vigilant and I'm so I'm so aware of every little thing. And and I think if I had been able to speak about it, I would have realized it was quite normal because I would have heard mm-hmm. that other people were. But because I didn't, I sort of existed in this bubble of pain and fear that kept mm-hmm. me separated from the rest of the living world. And it wasn't until I hit on the sci-fi metaphor that I use in the book of saying, okay, imagine if. You know, at the moment of birth, the laws of physics briefly change so that not only does every possibility exist side by side, but they can actually affect each other for a brief moment because that's what it felt like to me. It's not till I posited that and sort of sort of play with that, that I could speak about my experience. Mm-hmm. And once I could do that and speak about my experience and look at my experience, um, I mean, I think, you know, speaking about it to other people was very important. Speaking about it to myself was probably the most important thing, you know, mm-hmm. saying like, you're actually, this is what you're going through. This is how it is for you. That I was really able to not only, um, you know, make some peace with it and not be suffering as much and not be isolated, but also make some real meaning and richness out of it. Like, I think it really enriched my, my experience of mothering in the end. And it wouldn't have been able to if I hadn't had that way that I hit on to speak about it and mm-hmm. then, and then to write about it and write through mm-hmm.
1: it. Um, with uh, brilliant creativity, uh, bringing in, uh, bringing in physics and um, I so much, again, I don't want to, I don't want to say too much, but you bring in so much of the, the therapist side of you, the parent side of you, the traumatized parent side of you, the partner Working out a relation, difficult relationship side of you, um, all through the Bay Area, which um, you know we we both are in, and it's close. So I I loved all of the areas I could see in my mind's eye that you were speaking to. How how long was the process uh, of writing this novel?
0: It wasn't that long, actually. I mean, for a novel, I mean, I I I have taken way longer to write a novel. (laughs) I'll put it that way. Um, I think I started the book when my son was. well, I had the idea for the book when he was about eight months old. And in fact, I know the exact moment I had the idea for the book. Um, and, then I, um, and then I started writing it when he was a little over a year old. He's, you know, he's six and a half now. Um, I think that the whole book, I wrote the book in like a year and mm-hmm. then took another year to revise it. Um, mm. So all, all told it took, you know, then, then worked on it some with my editor. So all told, I would say it took between two and three years to write yeah. the
1: book. That is on the yeah. short side as far as, as far as the, the work goes, this work goes yeah. that 's yeah. yes, impressive um, going back to what you talked about with these boxes, um, and now you know where we are aligned with both being um, you know you have your clinical self and then you have your regular human self, yes. and sometimes we can totally access our clinical self, but most of the time when we 're in the real world even though we have this intellectual knowledge we're still human beings having human experiences trying to make sense of it and so what resonated with me and what my experience has been over time um working with mothers um postpartum and learning more and more about what we know about the experience is these boxes don't really hold up right so there's like you said there's this postpartum depression which in most cases people look for very severe obvious non-functioning or difficult functioning signs. And it's only recent that people have been even talking about a postpartum anxiety or postpartum OCD, which a lot of people experiencing some level of that, even if we're not giving it the big label. And where I think they converge is in our regular non-postpartum world. We don't hear a lot about Ruminative depression, whereas a person is depressed and they have these thoughts that ruminate and uh, they 're obsessive, but it 's from a depressive process, and the thoughts are so intrusive and they 're so alarming and that is what I have come to learn, and you tell me from your own personal experience for many mothers from from normal existential experience of having a newborn person that you 're now responsible for. Two, where it really can spin to a place that is, I guess, I'll just call it clinical, um, Mm -hmm. where we can't turn it off, and it really is getting in the way. So could you say a little just, I know I said a lot there, but a little bit about that continuum?
0: Yes, absolutely. You you said a lot, but you said it beautifully. I was enjoying every moment (laughs) of it. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I think that it's exactly as you say that, you know, I think there is no no new parent, but especially mother. And I think it kind of can, it, it, it abates, but I think it always lasts, mm-hmm. you know, that you're not having some ruminative, ruminative thoughts about your mm-hmm. child. Um, right. Evolution kind of bakes that in, right? Like here is this helpless little being. And the only way this little being is going to continue to persist is because we are going into that primary maternal occupation where we are our whole internal world is sort of reorganized around this little being um, and keeping them safe and, and seeing what they need and attuning to them. Um, I think um, there's a lot of research that shows that not always, certainly not always, I feel like you have to have that caveat with anything you're saying about the right. human mind. Right. Um, not, but often when, that normal ruminative, when those normal, ruminative, slightly depressive, scared thoughts Go to a clinical level. It's actually because the person having them thinks there's something wrong with them for having mm. these thoughts. So mm. there, are, there are several. There are quite. A, there are, I, I know four studies, but there they may or be more where they sort of they look at um, you know how how prevalent ruminative thoughts are, and not only these ruminative thoughts about dangerous to your child, but also checking behaviors in response. Right. Right. And it's like close to 100% for mothers and like not that far for new fathers who are very involved in the care of their children. But if and if people know this and know that it's normal and are okay with it, it doesn't get in the way of life. It doesn't cause undue suffering. I mean, it's not fun. It, right. You know, it's some level of suffering, but it's not, it's not getting in the way of living. It's not getting in the way of functioning. So it's not rising to that clinical level. But if you get to a point where you're, where you're thinking like, there's something wrong with me. I'm not a good enough parent. I'm losing my mind or, you know, I've got to stop this. I've got to control this. Then it, you get into this cycle where it becomes, it starts getting worse and worse and worse. It's getting louder and louder and louder in your head because you're not letting it in. And that's when it can sort of rise. That's when it can often rise to those clinical levels of suffering. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. the more we can actually speak about exactly as you're doing, um, how normal this is, the fewer people actually reach that level of clinical suffering.
1: And hopefully talking to your pediatrician, your general practitioner, um, your internist with a, uh, and hopefully getting this kind of response. So I think we should also talk about, you know, not everyone across the field puts these in the existential buckets. A lot of the medical community puts this in normal, abnormal, and this is so not a, a, a binary conversation.
0: I, yes, I could not agree more. And I mean, I think I, it's interesting. I had, um, I mean, I think, do, the medical community is trying so hard, you know, or many members of the medical community to take postpartum suffering, postpartum experiences more seriously, but because they do tend to put it in these buckets, it often cannot, you, you might not get the response you want. So, I mean, I had this experience when I went to my first postpartum checkup, my six week checkup, and I was having a really hard time. And I came and sort of said like, you know, on the way here, I, I was having such a hard time with my anxiety that I actually imagined swerving into traffic. Like, that's mm-hmm. a pretty big thing to say. And yeah. the response was, um, how do you consider going on an SSRI? Which, it's not a bad response. Like, I had considered going on an SSRI. Right. Maybe that was right. But I, what I would have wanted in that moment, I mean, imagine right. if instead the response had been like, I am so sorry. That sounds horrible. Tell me more about that. You right. know, that would have right. made me curious about my own experience and it would have helped me so much more. And I just, and I think that, you know, for anyone going through any, any form of postpartum suffering, which I think is always baked in, even to the most wonderful postpartum experience, um, is to try, is to keep trying to find those people who will be curious about your experience and ask you to, to speak more about, about your very particular experience. Cause I think that's what we need in that mm-hmm. time.
1: Mm hmm hear that everyone? So just for anyone going through this or anyone, you know, it's, it, it really is. And your, and your message and particularly in your slate article too, is like, we need to normalize this. We need to be talking about this. We need to normalize this. We, we, we do not want to repeat the stigma that has gone on, uh, with mothers. And again, it is more mothers and fathers. This does happen to dads too, but Mothers are in the prime um, biological and experiential uh, realm to experience this, and and as you point out, it's this it's almost this um, twisted riddle that we get as parents, and particularly as a mother, which is your job is to keep this little human alive and you are completely powerless to do so with all that can happen in the universe.
0: (laughs) Yup. And, and like, just to like, you know, to, to put the screws to that riddle a little more that also added into that is this sort of cultural message that, and you better not be too anxious about it because if you're Mm -hmm. too worried a mother, um, you know, you're, then you're also messing up your kid. And so it's like, yeah, you're just, you're, you're put in this impossible position Um, and, and I think we just don't think about that that much. We don't think about that gap between the primal. It's like, it's really this like primal urge to protect your child. You know, like, it's like, it's as like, it's as, as as primary as like wanting to drink when you're thirsty or eat when you're hungry is like, I need to keep this person safe. You feel it in that way. And you are a human who is not mm-hmm. omnipotent and this right. person is subject to chance as we all are. And that gap is, is really a doozy to exist in. Um, oh, yeah. and I think we just, we don't give it it the weight that it is due. And so we kind of hang parents and mothers in particular out to dry in this way,
1: which is not helpful.
0: It is not helpful.
1: <laughs> no, no. And in your, your research, we said, one of the most common things you're finding in your research thus far is the worry the mothers are worrying about their worry yeah right so it's so it's they're having what we call metacognition right we're having the separation from here is my thought and now i can look at my thought right so these are aware people yeah and yet and they're not saying i'm worrying about my child's um i'm sure they are but not breathing. I'm worried about my child getting kidnapped. I'm worrying about my child hitting their head. Like those are all there, but really it's like, I'm worried that I'm worrying so much. What's wrong with me? Exactly.
0: Exactly. And that was like almost, I mean, all of those other themes also of course are coming out in in these, in these interviews as I, as I was speaking to these women, but, but that worry about their worry, like, am I, am I messing up? Am I a bad mother? Because I'm worrying too much or worrying in the wrong way. That was so at the surface for every mother. And it was causing so much more suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just fascinating to me of mm-hmm. like this, you know, cause this is like, you know, okay, the other worries, the worry about, you know, can I keep this person safe? Can I keep them from like, experiencing terrible pain in their life. No, you cannot. <laughs> and you're just mm-hmm. going to have to live with that. But the worrying about our worrying, that we can actually do something about. You know, if we right. if we can normalize this, if we can talk about it, if we can talk, if we can have mothers regard themselves with respect and curiosity, instead of this like knee-jerk contempt that I think our culture tends to bring to worried mothers, then we actually, that is a form of suffering we can relieve. And mm-hmm. that felt very hopeful to me, actually.
1: Mm-hmm. So I was just uh, formulating a question, which I'm going to ask, but then I'm catching myself because I'm i like I'm I'm landing in this murkiness of not wanting to um, reinforce a false notion. And so here's here was the question: is you know when we think of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, most of the time the person that has these very unwanted and intrusive thoughts knows that they're irrational but they're too scary to not act on the obsession or the compulsion to see if it would actually happen. So what I was going to say is when it comes to postpartum anxiety, do these mothers know that it's irrational? But as I was saying that, there's so much rationality in this sphere. That
0: is exact. I I think that is exactly it. And I think, um, you know, and I think that's what really, um, differentiates postpartum OCD, which is which has been skyrocketing as a diagnosis mm-hmm. from from non postpartum OCD. I think like when when you've had OCD, when you already have an existing OCD condition and then you have postpartum OCD, um, you know that that might be a different story. But for people who are ha- experiencing it for the first time, I think often it's not really OCD or like it, it's not that it's not really OCD. I think it, it can become OCD, um, but Only if you think it's irrational, you know, because it is rational. It's like, there's nothing irrational about it, except for when you start to like treat it as a huge problem and you start to try to control it and over control it. Does that make sense? So it's like, if you're thinking like you're waking up several times a night with your like two week old baby, afraid they're not breathing. um, That's, that's normal. Yeah. (laughs) It's not fun. It's gonna right. go away. You're gonna trust that your that your child sleeps, you know, through the night. But it's totally normal. It's what your mind, it's your mind reorganizing itself, you know, as it's supposed to at this moment and being hypervigilant as it's supposed to at this moment. And it's only if you start thinking like, there is something wrong with me. I am broken. I'm not gonna be a good mother. I'm gonna mess this up. I must control this. I must control this. I must control this, that it starts becoming um it starts becoming actual ocd at that yes. point
1: yes oh i have so many memories of when our kids were all infants that when we would wake up we would just go check on them to make sure they're breathing right it's just kind of like up oh, let's yep. just go make sure they're still alive right i mean it was and it wasn't a light thing you're like walking and <laughs> going please keep please be breathing please be breathing yes. Yes. and then at some point over time they get big enough you i don't know you realize They're breathing, you know, and this was before we could look at them on our phones. Like people can't, you know, like you can actually see them breathing when you look at your phone. This, we just had the, um, the, the audio, right. We're we're listening to their voices or their coos, but yeah. So at some point, I guess, so here's the question. Uh, So I'm, I hear you and agree with you about accepting. And I know you have a way that, uh, which we'll talk about a way that you have come to accept this, uh, uh, what's the word, this maternal, um, this maternal, uh, experience, right? That's yeah. just the reality of the maternal experience. When is like, when is it also you accept it, but when is it, do you think it's, I always say like a problem's not a problem unless it's a problem. When is it? And, and to me, this problem can be twofold. One is it's a problem because it's really affecting a uh, mother's mental health and and secondly, the byproduct is is over time, it does have impacts on a child because we parent a certain way when we are anxious. And as our kids get older, they give us good feedback about that. But when they're yeah. younger, they can't. So it's like, when is when is do you find, okay, I actually need to get some professional help about this, which is different than there's something really wrong with me. I'm broken.
0: Yes. I mean, I think if you're suffering, if you're mm-hmm. suffering. You should talk to someone because mm-hmm. you know you you're probably not broken, um, but but you still might have you know but you also probably are a little bit broken because becoming a new parent breaks us a little bit. I mean, it really mm-hmm. is this normal existential crisis where the person you used to be doesn't entirely exist anymore, and now you have to figure out who are you now. Um, and the, there's this wonderful phrase I, I might butcher it a little, but the the psychoanalyst um, Galit Atlas um oh, who practices I, in New York. Do you know her? I love her. She was on her. the
1: show Sherbook. Oh, was amazing. Yes, she was. I oh, adore she's, her. she's amazing. Yes.
0: She is. But so she has this, she talks about the ex, you know, the normal existential breakdown mm-hmm. of new motherhood. And she says it's a period when you either have to have breakthrough or breakdown. And I think that that's really it. you know, you might become, you know, if you can navigate this period with support, with help, with curiosity, um, in a way that you can grow, you do you grow, you become this new more you know this new more flexible person. There are all these things you learn about yourself, your mm-hmm. own history, your own mind um, but if you 're suffering a lot in that process, bring you need to bring someone else in to help you learn mm-hmm. how to have that existential breakthrough instead mm-hmm. of breakdown. Um, you know I would also say that especially as your kids get older, um, I have found in terms of of when worry, maternal worry becomes not just like, this is normal. And instead, like, this is a problem is if you, um, if you're taking your worry as fact, you know what I mean? Like, I Mm -hmm. think that there are some ways that you're, you can, you can start taking this attitude toward your worry for your children, where you regard it as a fact, and then it controls you and it controls your children. And that's a problem. That's Mm -hmm. no good. But if you can instead sort of always take that step back from it Um, And regard it with curiosity and say like, well, why am I, you know, why is this a recurring theme in my worry? Why am I constantly having this fantasy about, you know, just to pull one out that came up often in my research. It's a very common fantasy for mothers of school age children to imagine their children being hit by a car on the way to school. Um, or to like, you know, as they drive away from them, something happens to the car, you know, that like in that moment of separation, you have these dark fantasies, um, of something happening to your child and to sort of step back and be like, well, what, you know, why am I having this recurring fantasy? Is it because there's something unsafe that I have to change or is it instead something about me, something about my relationship with this particular child, something about this particular moment in time for me? And is there something useful here I can learn that could actually, um, change my relationship to myself or my child or, or something in our environment in, in a productive way.
1: Hmm. Yes, ni- that was nicely broken out. And again, this is all about um, this show and these conversations are all about increasing for us all to increase awareness. And what you're talking about is increasing self-awareness, right? Really looking at a situation and trying to pull apart the different ingredients to see if you can put them in different boxes. And if you can, great. And if it's hard, which is normal, then seek some, seek some counsel, seek some guidance and know that you're not alone. This is a very common human, particularly mother, new mother experience. Yeah. Well, and the mothering experience and I'll add in the fathering, the parenting experience. I mean, it, my experience the worries do not end. They just, they just change. Right. As your kids get older, you're just worrying about different things. And I I just I just have so much empathy for parents and um, this journey that I feel like the, the parents that are, you know, when you're when you're really trying to be a good parent, you're trying to be a present parent, you're trying to be an aware parent. You are generally more aware of lots of different things that are going on in your kid's life and things that are in the world that can be impacting your kid's life. And it is really hard not to worry, or let me just say, to manage worry. Because you're always, because not worrying is not a, that's not even something to aspire to, right?
0: (laughs) So true. So true.
1: In your novel, you know, speaking of facts, um, is this a fact or is this not a fact? That is what is one of the um, the dances that is going on, right? What is true and what is not true? And sometimes what seems to be true is not, and sometimes what seems to be not true is true, right? And it's just yes. like it really makes us have to think. I mean, in, in reading the story, um, it is a thinking story. Like it is a thinking story. Um, but also helps us reflect on our own life about what are the things that we're actually worrying about and do I have any control over this? Can I do something about this? Or do I just need to let this go and let life play out?
0: Yes. You know, that was actually the other, the other thing when you were asking about what, you know, themes that have emerged in my research with, with mothers about how they, how they deal with the uncertain futures of their children. Something so interesting that emerged was that I found that the, the participants who came in saying, like, I'm a worried mess. I'm a disaster. They were not. <laughs> they, you know, they were mm-hmm. very aware of their worry. I mean, they, this could not speak to your theme of your podcast. Yeah, more, right, but they right. were, they're very aware of their worry. And because they were very aware of their worry, they were, they were thinking, they were feeling their way through it, and they would speak to such richness that they had actually found in the worry. I mean, they would say these beautiful things. Like, you know, I mean, one of them spoke about feeling the abundance of the world more through her anxiety for her children. Another one spoke about that. Actually, two people use this phrase, the shadow side that the shadow side of worry was this richness because they could feel the sort of the, the fragility and how it could all be whipped away. And that made them enjoy every moment. You know, so they were really experiencing in, in multiple different ways, richness and meaning from their worry. The mothers who came in um, saying, you know, I'm not sure why I responded to this. I'm not really a very worried mother. I, I manage my worry very well. I have these tools and techniques for managing my worry. They were suffering a lot more actually Mm. they were you know these these really dark themes would sort of unexpectedly emerge in their in their interviews um and i'd say you know i don't know where this comes from but i often have this image of like you know insert some terrifying thing um and then go right back to you know but then i but then i stop it but then i don't worry about it um and they would also a, a theme that emerged in those interviews was they all had some fantasy of escape to a safe haven Um, and these themes of richness and meaning didn't emerge as often in those interviews. And I think that really reinforced for me, you know, just how important it is to sort of, you know, it's like, you got it, you got, this is, this is a given, this is going to happen. Figure out what this means for you, sit side by side for it with Mm -hmm. it, figure out what the meaning is going to be, um, of this new presence in your life. And, and, and it can be a rich and meaningful one if you do Mm -hmm.
1: That's so interesting about the, the, again, this paradox of the people who are talking about being a disaster actually aren't, and the people who are using their coping mechanisms to say they're fine often aren't, right? It's like this, it's this opposite. And it, um, it goes to what we know a lot about the psychology of, um, the psychology of acceptance, um, or of the Buddhist tradition of acceptance, we know, or Carl Rogers, back in the day, like when we lean into reality, it often allows us to befriend and create a different relationship, whatever the distress is. When we suppress, try to control, it makes it worse. And the irony here is the natural human response when one is anxious and feeling out of control is to control more that's just like that's a, that's our normal human instinct
0: yup yup and it's the, and and it and it can and it can really get in our way mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean that you know in the book i i often th- the book it's funny someone i'd th- I'd seen someone describe the book somewhere as like Oh it's just like it's like intrusive it's like those intrusive postpartum thoughts made into a novel. <laughs> and I was like yeah that is that is in fact what it is and 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 you know without giving any spoilers away I do think that the book for me is about how do you surrender? You know, instead of yeah. trying to control how do you surrender to reality? Um, and once you can sort of surrender to reality then you can, you're sort of you're along for the ride and you can enjoy mm-hmm. it. But mm-hmm. that moment of surrender is so difficult and we have to do it again and again and again.
1: Yes, and you wrote, th- so this this line I pulled out um, from the article, which speaks to this, when I let myself be terrified, although it can make me miserable and surely sometimes smothering, I enjoy being a mother so much more. Yeah,
0: it is so, so true.
1: Yeah, so talk about this, this, existential experience of allowing yourself to be fearful, terrified, worried, which enhances your mothering experience as opposed to taking away from it.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, I think it's the bringing in the curiosity and the lack of judgment and not letting, not taking the worry as fact. Um, but you know, instead of, um, you know, there'll be these moments where I'm, I'm going into some you know, extreme, you know, some thought spiral about my son, some suffering I think he might have to go through that I can't control. Um, and instead of saying like, oh, you know, be quiet, yeah, Al. you're being a, a worried Jewish mother, which is all that's, that's the voice that my contempt takes in my life. Like, right. You're such a worried Jewish mother, you know, you're gonna, yes. which I think yes. is why the word smothering probably got into that yes. Sentence
1: yes, Yes, um, yes. Yeah.
0: And, and, and instead of doing that, you know, just sort of take a step back, like, no, you, you are, you are terrified about this. You're terrified about this. Let's think about why. Why are you terrified about this? Um, And and what might you learn about yourself here? What might you learn about your relationship with your son here? How might this be manifesting itself in your relationship with your son in ways that you're not aware of? Um, And that, you know, it brings, it makes, first of all, it makes mothering for me so much more freeing. I can just sort of feel into it, move into it. I'm not trying to control where my mind is going. Um, And it makes it so much more interesting. You know, it's like, here's this wonderful intellectual puzzle. What's going on here between us? What Mm -hmm. am I acting out? What is it having to do with what he might be going through? Um, There's so much, there's so much fodder there for, Mm -hmm. for thought, for feeling. Um, And so I think it just, it makes mothering really fun for me when Mm -hmm. I am not trying to control my worry um, or not, not trying to like corral, I should say, my worry in that way.
1: Right, right. And again, these things are not black and white, right? I'm fine, I'm not fine. I'm worried, I'm not worried. I'm terrified, I'm not terrified. There's an element of all of this in every daily situation, no matter how um, old our kids get, which my mother reminds me of as well. And I have that same experience with our young adult kids as well, right? Like I'm living it, I know. And I think it's, um, we need to have compassion for this human experience and again this paradox of we are biologically driven to keep them safe and alive and there is so much we have no control over when it comes to their safety i'm going to quote you one more time here because i love this um loving my son is terrifying because i have never known such joy and plentitude And I know this joy and plentitude because I live on a knife edge of fear. I found my way to this realization and the steadiness it brings to my sense of myself as a mother when I stopped trying to separate the wonder and the terror. I learned instead to accept them for what they are, inevitable and inextricable. Yeah. You should be a writer. That was beautiful.
0: (laughs) Thank you. I'll try.
1: Yeah. So it's just, it's part of the package. Right, so instead of pathologizing, stigmatizing, worry, fear, obsessiveness, while acknowledging it can get to clinical levels that require help, we need to understand it's part of the package of motherhood, of parenthood. It comes with it.
0: It's, it's been really interesting to me, you know, going being out with this book, talking to a lot of people about this book, that a question I've got, gotten several times um, is, you know, are, aren't you worried? There have been a lot of books about motherhood, the, the experience of motherhood lately. Aren't you worried that um, the market might be saturated? And I find this to be such a funny and slightly disturbing question (laughs) because, you know, because, and and it goes back to that thing we were talking about, about the boxes and the categories again, you know, is they're like, well, like, as though there's some answer of like, this is what the maternal experience is like, this is what the postpartum experience is like, when in fact, like this is parenting a child is first and foremost, a relationship. And like any deep, wild relationship, which is what this is, it is going to be, infinitely varied you know not only with each parent but each child to each parent is going to be a different kind of relationship and I think that the more that that's sort of also part of sort of honoring and having compassion for our experiences nobody has had this particular experience before no one has been this particular parent parenting this particular child before so it's a brand new field and there's right. no particularly normal way to do it
1: that is a fascinating uh, question. It just so speaks to our capitalistic and commercialistic uh, culture when the response is Are you worried that the market is saturated? There can be 10 million books on a subject, and uh, the 10 millionth and one th- book can still be very impactful. And again, this is a difference between our business, you know, I'm, on, I'm going off here, on the um, like an artist creating a piece of work or music or book versus the commercial aspects of selling and the market share. They are completely different things.
0: Yeah. I mean, they could not be more different. And I think, I mean, the other part of it I find so funny is that I try to imagine in those moments, someone asking that question about like a book about, romantic love. Like, aren't you worried there are too many books about romantic love? Isn't the market saturated? It's like, nobody would say that because we, th- right. we know that each of those relationships is unique and different from the others, but we don't think about parenting for some reason in those terms. We think there's some normal way to do it. There's some way it's supposed to be. And I think that that can add to, to what makes it hard to be a parent.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So what there've been several important messages here. What would you say is uh, like what you really want people to get from possibilities? Um, but also really your work on it's, it's all of it. It's all wrapped up in one, you know, what you wrote about in slate, your, your clinical work and research. What are you wanting people to understand and take away?
0: You know, I would say, um, um, can, I do two, can I say two things? <laughs> oh,
1: you, of course, yes. Because
0: <laughs> I think that there are two, you know, the book really is, it's, it's taking this sci-fi metaphor, making the sci-fi thriller, tweaking the laws of reality in order to bring to light an aspect of the psychological experience that I think otherwise does not often come to light. And I think there are two pieces to that that I wanted to bring to light. Um, one is, you know, what you have actually already stated so beautifully is that gap that existential gap that we all carry as parents between what we are, we so desperately want to do, protect these children, um, and what we can do as human beings subject to chance and uncertainty, um, and how hard it is to live with that, and how we each have to make our own peace with it and find our own relationship to that really deeply heavy experience. Um, that's, That's the first thing. The other thing is to, that that becoming a new parent in general um, is such a um, it stirs up all the psychic sediment, and I'm sure you know this. Is, I'm sure you could speak to this, you know, far better than I can. But it stirs up so much psychological sediment, and it and it puts the thumbs. To, All our pain points as a human being that we have been able to sort of skate over because you know you know as long as we've been functioning pretty well like we don't notice those things and suddenly we do because we're like why did I say that why did I do that why did I have that reaction to my child Um, and I think that the more we can react to that with curiosity, which, you know, in in a way, what what the entire book is about is sort of going deep into these worlds within worlds within ourselves and seeing Mm -hmm. like, what are the parts of myself I haven't been aware of? And how can that help me enjoy this experience more, live it more richly and parent more effectively? Um, I would say Mm -hmm. those are the two things.
1: I like that, you know, back to like leaning in, getting curious and, um, Not trying not to do, again, the normal human response when there is pain is to pull away, right? Whether it's we're touching a stove or a psychological pain, it's to pull away, it's to avoid, it's to reject, it's to distract. And really what you are saying is you're inviting people, mothers, particularly new mothers, to lean into it and be curious about it.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: As we wind down, I'm curious as to what your son has taught you.
0: So much. Mm -hmm. I I mean, in some ways, I feel like he has taught me to be a human being. (laughs) If that makes sense. You know, I feel like watching him, um, you know, at every stage I see, like, oh, oh, this is what we're like. This is who we are. This is what humans are. You, you know what I mean? You know, it's like, I mean, starting with like his, you know, when he was an infant. I remember I had this extremely strange thought when he was a newborn of, oh, he's very needy, and then and then I was like, well, that's a very strange thought to have about a newborn baby. Like that <laughs> requires some explanation. Um, you know, and it and really helped me see, like, oh, I am not so comfortable with my needs and, and with my dependency needs in particular. So it's like starting right from the get go, saying, like, mm-hmm. oh, this is something humans are like. Humans are like this, you know, and, and then even just seeing, you know, when he was a toddler and even as a preschooler. Um, honestly, even now at six and a half, it's like, you see the immensity of these of these emotions, the rage, the aggression, all these things that we sort of try to deny in ourselves, you sort of see it writ large and you see how, um, how normal it is and how hard it is to be a person. Like, I just like, I remember he, you know, the other, this was maybe last year, um, he was talking to me about friendships and how hard friendships are. And he said, you know, they want things that are different from what I want and <laughs> and I don't like that and I was like yeah that is welcome to being human you know but it's just like these it's just like it's so right. they don't have all their defenses in place and so you just see it so plainly and honestly and I feel mm-hmm. like every day there's something where I'm like oh that's what it's like to be a human I'm like that too that's mm-hmm. what it's like you know It just every day is like that somehow
1: mm-hmm and they are our mirrors. Boy, like you said, all the things that we think we've put away or didn't even know we had, (laughs) all of a sudden they have this way of bringing them to the surface and that's where it's, we need to get curious, right? And this is, it takes a lot to be a parent just getting through your day-to-day life. And then also to go through a process of inquiry and questioning. And so for everyone out there, uh, we empathize and, um, try to do it in those, in those few moments, th- those, those moments, whether it's before bed, whether it's that, uh, one, the sanctuary of the bathroom, which I know many parents just find that becomes the only place, especially when their kids are young, that you can be alone sometimes. And, you know, just try to, try to have some self-compassion and some inquisitiveness about this lesson, this journey that you're on with your child, because my experience has been, I, at this point, I don't know who's taught who more, whether we have learned more from our kids, or we, they have learned more for us. It's, it's probably a pretty even thing, and I, and I expect the tables to turn the older and older they get.
0: That sounds yeah. right. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> I expect the same.
1: Yes. Okay, i all it's time for the parent footprint moment question. Here we go. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your child, and or those you love
0: yeah i you know I, it's funny i think i I have to plagiarize myself a little bit like i gave, I gave a teaser to this answer yes you're all, you're allowed answer. to do that yes <laughs> um because it, it really was i mean it 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 was that moment of of um i would say the most profound one of the most profound moments of awareness i've had in my life came from that moment of thinking about my newborn he's so needy and wondering. Why did I just have such a strange thought <laughs> about my newborn son? And it really, it was like that broke something wide open in me. Thinking about that, thinking about the extent to which I am uncomfortable with my needs. I'm uncomfortable with my dependency, my my like normal human dependency needs as a person. And this is why I'm having a hard time. Part of why I'm having a hard time as a new mother. I'm not asking for the help I need because I'm not even allowing myself to be aware of it. Um, that was profound for me and it really started, um, it started me on my own most recent going back, going back years now round of psychotherapy where I, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm trying to look at, you know, what gets in the way of my doing this? Why? It's Mm -hmm. not so simple as saying like, I do this now I will not do this. No, every step of the way I'm getting in my own way. I continue to six and a half years on, you know, I get better and better at it. But it's, you know, it was, it was 38 years of, of learning that I have to unlearn and figure out. And um, that for me has been, um, has been the most, I would say, most profound part of my own self-awareness in becoming a mother and the ways that I've, that I'm, I've changed most profoundly.
1: Beautiful, beautiful. And uh, the courage to change, right? The courage to inquire, the courage to seek help, and the courage to change. Yeah, it is hard. Yeah. Well, you should also be a psychotherapist oh, and all these <laughs> talents, all these talents that are just coming out here today. Um, okay. Tell everyone, um, I mean, this book is just out. Tell everyone where not only to find your book, but you're doing lots of speaking and promotions. Tell us everything.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, let's see. So it, um, you can find it, any, anywhere books are sold, um, I, I of course always encourage people to go to your local bookstore first, or bookshop.org, but Amazon is fine too, if, if need be. Um, uh, and let's say, I have, a, I have a, um, an event coming up in the Bay Area um, this Saturday, Saturday, August 19th, um, at 4 pm. at the Berkeley Public Library North Branch. Um, I'm in conversation with the novelist Vanessa Hua. Um, who was also a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle for many years. Um, I also have an, an event coming up in the Bay area on September 16th um, to benefit page street and lit camp that's in San Francisco. Um, I think at also at 4 PM. No, it might be earlier. You know what? Go to my, my website is www. That's the place to dot go. My and then, and then all my events are listed there. And I will, there, I will not be messing up with the times as I am here.
1: That's why we need websites and people to put those things in for us so (laughs) we don't have to think about that sort of thing. Exactly. Well, congratulations again. Um, This is so much of you is in this work and it's so clear how uh, passionate and mission driven you are about this topic, not only in your research and in your literature um, and your speaking. So thank you for putting this out there for everyone.
0: Thank you. Thank you for for speaking to me. This was such a pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. I know you know many people who would benefit from this conversation. Please let them in on it. Thank you for being a part of our community. We welcome all of your friends and family and loved ones to our community. We have an amazing community. We appreciate your five-star reviews. They really do make a difference. You know what I'm going to ask you to do. Try to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself that guiding question, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.